Hello and welcome to Bad Apple. I'm Riley. And I'm Helen. And today's case is coming from New Zealand and it's coming from the year we were both born. That's true. Is that a little too much personal information to share? Maybe. No, I was thinking about that the whole time, like mm. how many months old I was in Auckland at that time. Ah, how old were you? Probably, well, this happened around September, so I was five months old. Nice. Pretty fresh. I guess it's also a good gauge. While I was writing it, I was thinking, how long has it been since this happened? So it was easy for me to tell because it was kind of near when I was born. Because that's how long it's been unsolved for. Our whole lives. Yeah. Our whole lives. Yeah. Which would be 23 years. About 23 years. Yeah. This case also links to a couple other cases that we've already done. Mm-hmm. Our episode about Wan Biao, which is a case also involving an international student. And it also links to our episode about Grace Mullane, who was a tourist in New Zealand. A tourist in Auckland. A young female tourist in Auckland. Mm. A lot of parallels, mm. despite them being many years apart. Shall we start? Let's go. On the 22nd of September, 1998, fire alarm technician Dennis Groves was carrying out routine maintenance on the fire alarm system at the Auckland City Library. He went into the centre court building to access the utility cupboard that contained the fire alarm panel when he noticed the smell of ammonia. As Dennis approached the cupboard, the smell was getting worse, but nothing could prepare him for what he was about to find. In November 1997, 29-year-old Japanese national Kayo Matsuzawa flew to Christchurch, New Zealand, to pursue her dreams of travelling and learning English. She began her studies at the Dominion English School in Christchurch. Always a hard worker, Kayo also worked in a restaurant to pay her bills and afford her spare income to explore New Zealand. Kayo's mother said that her daughter could make anyone around her happy. She always had a lot of friends wherever she went. This included at her English school. Her friends say that Kayo was a happy, cheerful person who spoke kindly of everyone she knew. She was still close with her family in Japan and regularly sent postcards home. She had sent one for her mother's birthday in August 1998, which read, Dear Mum, Happy Birthday. I've decided to come home to Japan on November 4th, so another three months to go. Take care. Love, Kayo. The following month, in September 1998, Kayo planned a trip to Auckland in the North Island. She'd been hesitant about travelling alone and asked a friend from school, Naomi Saishu to go with her to Auckland. Naomi couldn't afford it at the time, but reassured Kayo that she was going to be fine. Women travelled alone in New Zealand all the time. Kayo, nerves eased, promised to send Naomi a postcard from Auckland. Ten days later, no postcard had arrived, and Naomi began to worry about her friend. The following day, Naomi's darkest fears were realised. The police arrived at her workplace and asked her to come with them to the police station. They wouldn't tell her why until they were at the station, but Naomi already knew. Something had happened to Kayo. Kayo had arrived in Auckland by plane on Friday the 11th of September 1998 and had caught a bus from the airport to Queen Street, a busy street in the centre of the CBD. It's also only the only street in the CBD. I didn't want to say that when I was writing, but I kind of thought that maybe that might be the case. Yeah. I kind of googled it. And it, it was, is, like, yeah, the main it. thoroughfare of the CBD. I was like, okay. Yeah. And the ones that, like, run perpendicular to it, mm-hmm. not much is happening on them. Right. CCTV footage shows her getting off the bus at 2.14pm and crossing the street to Queen Street Backpackers, where she had booked three nights accommodation. She went up two flights of stairs to room 25, spent some time setting up her room, and then left again. 
She is seen on CCTV walking along Queen Street just over an hour later at 3.32pm. While it was relatively quiet at the time, Queen Street would soon be bustling with people as they made their way home from work or went out for Friday drinks. Police suspect that Kayo never returned to her room. In 1998, people were not so easily contactable. While none of her friends or family had heard from her, no one reported Kayo missing. They presumed that she was just enjoying her holiday. That was until an unsuspecting Dennis Groves opened a utility cupboard at the center court building to check the fire alarm panel, and instead found Kayo's body, 11 days after she had arrived in Auckland. Initially, Dennis thought the body might be a mannequin, but after realizing what he was really looking at, he went downstairs and called the police. Dennis says that he had a, quote, darn good look at the body, as he thought he might be required to give evidence later. Kayo had been stripped naked, and all her jewelry had been removed. This may have indicated that robbery was a motive, but it was more likely an attempt to conceal Kayo's identity. Do you think if you stumbled across a dead body, you'd have a really good look at it, in case you needed to give evidence? I think it would depend on the state. Hmm. I think very reflexively I would look away. I think that's just human nature. Yeah. Not for Dennis. But fair enough. I don't think that's a rogue thing to do. No, I don't think so either. When you think about it, people often do things that you wouldn't do when they're like confronted with a scenario like that. Yeah. It had been 11 days since Kaya was murdered, meaning her body was already decomposing. This made it impossible to identify the body and to determine the cause of death. Kayo had not yet been reported missing, so police were relying on public information to determine whose murder they were investigating. Fortunately, a lead presented itself quickly. Around a week earlier, on the 16th of September, some of Kayo's belongings, including her passport, day bag, and travel insurance documents, had been found in a public rubbish bin on the corner of Albert and Swanson Street. This is just a block away from the Centre Court building. As the rubbish collector emptied the bin into the truck, Kayo's belongings spilled out. It was standard procedure for personal property to be taken back to the office, so the rubbish collector handed the items into the office that day. These bins were regularly emptied two to three times per day, which meant that Kayo's belongings had only just been dumped into the bin. Either the offender had held onto them since Kayo's murder, or they had gone back to the cupboard to retrieve them later. How, like, serendipitous that the yeah. stuff fell out. Yeah. Because, and this happens a lot. Just these little things happening in cases? Yeah. Yeah. Like a I chicken agree. running across the road yeah. and someone following it mm. and then leading them to a body. Universe works in mysterious ways. That is definitely the universe. That was a touch of something. Yeah, for sure. Mm. When the media reported that an unidentified body had been found, an administrator from the rubbish collection office contacted the police to report that a passport had been found. Using these details, along with dental records and fingerprints from her belongings in the hostel, police were able to formally identify Kayo. After inspecting her room and the CCTV footage from the backpackers, police determined that not all of Kayo's belongings that were on her person at the time had been found. Her clothes and jewellery were missing. She was wearing black bootleg pants, a black jacket, black boots and a backpack. She had small, silver, moon-shaped earrings and a gold ring with a small pink stone. To this day, these items have never been found, despite an extensive search of the waste sites in the area. Police then turned their attention to how Kayo ended up in the utility cupboard at the Centre Court building. 
The utility cupboard is located in a shared stairwell of the Centre Court building. The cupboard itself was a unique space. It was more of a room than a cupboard, but it wasn't used for anything other than the fire alarm panel. It had a light switch inside, but it wasn't easy to reach. The cupboard door had an automatic close, meaning you'd need to place something in front of it in order to hold it open for a long period of time. It was supposed to be locked, and only accessible through a key kept by the building manager, but technicians would regularly open the door using a screwdriver to pick the lock. The stairwell is described as being a maze of stairs and doors to access various amenities in the building, the food court, the pub, the car park, as well as each floor of the building. The car park was accessible from the back of the building, on Mills Lane. All of these entry and exit points mean that many people had access to the stairwell. It also meant that the stairwell was often populated, and it would have been difficult to sneak a body into the stairwell without being noticed. During the day, people would be coming and going from offices, and after hours, the stairwell was where patrons from the pub would come to smoke. Police suspected that Kayo's body had been hidden well into the night of the 11th of September, or the morning of the 12th, which was a Saturday, meaning the building was much emptier. So how big was this room then? I don't have, like, dimensions. Big enough to stand in. Okay. Like a broom cupboard. I think, like, broom cupboard vibes. Okay. Broom cupboard or, like, some people have referred to it as, like, a janitor's closet. Mm-hmm. There was no CCTV in the building or in the laneway. The only lead for investigators was data from a swipe key system, which was needed to access the building after hours. The system had information about who was accessing the building and at what time. It was recorded across two different computer systems. Police checked the first computer system, which held data from the car park access from Mills Lane, and the entry into the Centre Court building from the car park. This would surely narrow their group of suspects. To their surprise, police found that all the data on the system from the weekend of the 11th, when Kaya went missing, was gone. Had it been deleted, or was it just a coincidental glitch? Maybe the second system would have the answers. The second computer system had information about who accessed the adjoining BNZ tower, which shared the stairwell. Bank of New Zealand, baby. Yeah. Data from the 11th and the 14th was also missing from this system, which was surely more than a coincidence. Because of this, and the fact that Kaio's belongings were found five days later, police believed that the killer was somehow able to access the security system and delete data from the 11th, when they hid the body, and on the 14th, when they went back to either retrieve items they left behind, or remove any identifying items from Kaio's body. This theory has never been proven, but either way, their leads were drying up. Investigators turned to forensic evidence. They analysed Kayo's belongings from the Albert Street bin for fingerprints, but these didn't produce a match. Forensic samples were collected from Kayo's body, but these weren't tested at the time. Investigators didn't want to use the limited samples and jeopardised the possibility of obtaining a more detailed analysis with improved technology in the future. In 2018, samples of DNA taken from under Kayo's fingernails were tested and was found to be male DNA. This DNA profile can now be compared against DNA from male suspects in the future. What they knew so far was that Kayo arrived in Auckland on the 11th, left her belongings in her room, went out and never returned. Sometime between then and the 22nd, she had been murdered and her body placed into the cupboard of the Centre Court building. You know how they can use genetics now to like, or use DNA to predict someone's genetics and then therefore predict what they might look like? I wonder if we'll ever get this far. With this DNA. Might be a stretch. It's kind of old and crusty. 
Yeah, that's what I was just going to ask. Does DNA, like, age? I don't know. Forensic stuff is a whole thing. I also love how, like, they just had hope. They just knew. Like, they were putting banking so much on, like, the technology getting better. Mm. Were they just assuming that at that point? Like, it's going to get better? Because that is so optimistic. Where do I get that energy in my life? I feel like around that time, like, late 90s, I feel like we were making some pretty big jumps in Mm. like forensic science Mm -hmm. so i reckon that's probably why they held off damn i think they could see it kind of improving right shortly after police established operation net dedicating more resources to investigating kaya's disappearance in the hope that her killer would be found however this failed to turn up any useful information in 2007 nine years after kaya's death A $75,000 reward was posted for information which led to the conviction of any person responsible. This also included the consideration of prosecutorial immunity for any accomplice who came forward. This also included the consideration of prosecutorial immunity for any accomplice who came forward. There have also been a number of television programs, including a documentary called The Investigator, Who Killed Kayo, in 2009, and an episode of Cold Case in 2018. Both of these programs prompted any witnesses who may have seen something to call the 0800 murder number and speak to New Zealand police. While nothing substantial has come of it so far, it has uncovered a number of potential witnesses and allowed police to gain a clearer picture of potential suspects. While there has been plenty of information that the police have withheld, saying that there are certain things that only they and the killer would know that would be crucial to future lines of inquiry, police have released a profile of the potential suspect. The killer would be confident, confident enough to approach a tourist, and confident enough to transport a body into a public place and then return to the scene. They say that the person must have appeared trustworthy enough that Kayo was comfortable staying with them for one or two hours. Police also suspect that the killer is someone who has been involved in a crime like this before, primarily because of their forensic awareness. Most of Kayo's belongings had been completely void of any fingerprints, and apart from the traces of male DNA under her fingernails, there were no other viable DNA traces. While sexual assault has never been confirmed in this case, it is believed that there was a sexual connotation attached to the murder. It is also suspected that the offender had premeditated their attack. Not necessarily that they were going to attack Kayo, but that they were out to attack someone. It wasn't just a random occurrence. I'm not sure I agree that the person had to be trustworthy enough that Kayo would spend a couple of hours with them. I feel like when you're alone in a new place as a young woman and someone approaches you you probably would be uncomfortable but you wouldn't know how to get out of the situation i've been in situations like that before especially when english isn't your first language yeah yeah you can't be you don't have the same tact Mm, to like talk yourself out to talk yourself out of it Mm. in addition to this it's clear that the killer must have had some knowledge of the layout of the center point building and how to get into that specific utility cupboard They likely were someone with after-hours access to the building, or who knew how to gain access. For that reason, the first and most obvious suspect was Dennis Groves, the fire alarm technician that discovered Kayo's body. Dennis had good knowledge of the layout of the Centerpoint building, and knew how to get into the utility cupboard. Had he murdered Kayo on Friday, and hid her body in the utility cupboard at Centerpoint, knowing that he was going to be working there in the coming weeks, where he could then find the body and appear innocent? Fortunately for Dennis, all his movements were electronically monitored as part of his work. 
This showed that he wasn't near the CBD on that Friday, and he was soon cleared as a person of interest. Another suspect was a longtime resident of the Queen Street Backpackers, where Kyle had been intending to stay while she was in Auckland. The Ukrainian man matched a description of a man who a witness saw walking with a young Asian woman on Friday evening, who they think may have been Kayo. The man was older with an unkempt appearance. He was described by those who knew him as being eccentric, paranoid, and he had a history of mental illnesses. What fed police suspicions was the fact that this man was known to make money pawning second-hand jewellery. He left New Zealand on the 22nd of September, which was the same day that Kayo's body was found and travelled to Australia where he pawned some jewellery, which seemed to match the description of Kayo's earrings and ring that had never been found. Police put out an Interpol alert to track the man down, but he wasn't able to be found for two years. In 2000, he was found squatting in an airport in France by French police, and was extradited back to New Zealand for questioning. Man on the other side of the world. I want, how did he get there? Why was he squatting? I don't know. Did you mean like he was living there? And yeah. He was trying to live at the... Well, that wasn't going to last long, was it? It's just a bad idea. Yeah. In the meantime, police had consequently tracked down the jewellery that he had pawned in Australia, and it was found not to be Kayo's. After questioning the man, he was ruled out as a person of interest in the investigation. The police explained that the man wasn't the type of person to have approached a tourist and started a conversation, and be able to entice them away. Interesting conclusion. Yeah. I thought about this too. How do you know? Literally. There must be more to questioning than just that conclusion. I'm sure there was, and maybe they just don't want to go into the details of all the questioning, but it just seems a bit, like, flimsy to be like, oh, you just have a feeling it wasn't him. He's he doesn't not that seem guy. Like, yeah. It's not him. You are not that guy, pal. You are not that guy. Literally. <laughs> that was... That was what they said. Is that not what they were... Like, that was it. Not it, but, like, that was what they put out. I guess they found out that the jewellery wasn't hers as well, which kind of ruled him out. But, yeah, very interesting. I don't know. I mean, what if he, what if there was someone else involved? And what if he was part of a jewellery syndicate or something? I have no idea. Mm, I don't know. Yeah. Also in the year 2000, it was revealed that Alan Grimson, a UK naval officer who had killed two young men, had been based at the Devonport Naval Base Fire School in Auckland. Adding to this suspicion was the fact that the manager of the fire alarm maintenance company that serviced the Centre Court building said he had met Grimson a few times through the fire school that they worked at. However, the manager says that Grimson wouldn't have known they serviced the Centre Court building or where the fire alarm panel was. Grimson was found guilty of the murders of two young men that he met while working in the Navy in the UK. Nicholas Wright in 1996 and Sean Jenkins in 1997. Grimson had gotten away with these murders until 1999, when someone spoke up about his predatory behaviour towards them. Apparently, Grimson had groomed a number of young men during his time in the Navy, but none had spoken up, as homosexuality was outlawed in the armed forces until 2000, and they feared that they would be dismissed or have their pensions suspended. While Grimson didn't present as a gay man, many of his colleagues knew that he frequented gay clubs while on deployment. It was at a nightclub that Grimson had met his first victim, 18-year-old Nicholas Wright. The pair knew each other from a firefighting course where Grimson was working. He gave Wright a lift home after the course. Wright expressed concern to his family. He was suspicious about Grimson's sexuality and whether he was being groomed. His family told him to be careful, but Wright continued to socialise with Grimson on a number of occasions. 
On December 12, 1996, Grimson and Wright left a nightclub together and went to Grimson's home. There, he attempted to kiss Wright, and after he was rebuffed, became violent, punching Wright and hitting him with a baseball bat. Grimson says that Wright asked him, quote, why don't you kill me? After which, he lost it, hitting him several times in the head with a baseball bat and cutting his throat with a butcher's knife before throwing him in the bathtub. He admitted that he carried out a sex act on the body and then went to bed. The following day, he drove Wright's body to a small village and dumped it in a hedge. He met his second victim, 20-year-old Sean Jenkins, in a similar fashion, outside a nightclub on December 11, 1997. He had met Jenkins earlier in the evening. Jenkins had served him at the Hogshead pub in Portsmouth. Jenkins had also served for a short time in the Navy, and the pair bonded over that. Grimson lured the young man back to his apartment and attempted to initiate sex. Jenkins resisted, but Grimson became violent and started making threats. He overpowered Jenkins and sexually assaulted him. After sleeping in Grimson's bed, Jenkins told him in the morning that he wanted to leave. After that, Grimson tied him up and put him in the bathtub where he was tortured. Grimson went out during the day and when he returned, he beat Jenkins to death with a baseball bat. He drove the body a similar distance and dumped it in a similar way. Grimson's crimes share a lot of similarities, particularly the date, December 12th. Because of this, UK police suspect that there are a number of other victims. Is Kayo one of them? New Zealand police don't think so. The MO of Kayo's murderer is very different from Grimson's. He targeted young men. He would bury them in shallow graves in the elements, while Kayo was hidden away. And Kayo had not been murdered on or around December 12th. The current main suspect came to light in 2018 and fits with the police's main theory that a man had approached Kayo, offered to buy her a drink, which was then spiked. Details about this suspect have not been made public, but bank records indicate that this person used their card to withdraw money from an ATM at the BNZ building, which adjoined the Centerpoint building on the same afternoon that Kayo arrived. While it has not been confirmed by police, the cold case documentary in 2018 suggested that this person has a history of previous offending involving spiking their victims' drinks. It's only been three years since this person came onto the police radar, so there is hope that the investigation might still answer the question, who killed Kayo? What surprises me, and I know that she was there alone, and it's the late 90s, so you don't have any immediate forms of contact with anyone, but she was last seen walking down Queen Street around somewhere between 3 to 4, right? Which is daytime. How have there been no more, like, sightings or anyone coming forward from that afternoon? There just seems like there's not a lot at all from when she stepped out of her room and walked down Queen Street. I think there are a couple of witnesses who think they saw her. Mm. But no one's ever been able to be like, yeah, that was definitely her. Yeah, like, oh, I interacted with her. Yeah. No one at, like, a store or, like, at a tourist attraction or or at, at a bar no one like you know yeah it seems like the last person she interacted with was the was the person at the desk at the backpackers when she checked yeah. in and then they saw her leave she was seen on cctv and it seems no one else interacted with her that is wild yeah but i guess if you're exploring a city alone like there's a few theories that she might have gone to get something to eat in the food court in the center point building yeah, okay. Because there's a sign at the front that says, like, International Food Hall. And yeah. people are like, oh, she would have wanted to go there mm, for some reason. Because she was in New Zealand, she might have wanted Japanese food. I don't know. But, yeah, if there was any other, like, interaction with anyone, 
They yeah. haven't said anything. Mm, mm-hmm. After Kayo's murder, her story didn't receive the same amount of coverage as similar events during the time. When asked about it, her friend Naomi said, It's because we are Japanese. Not only was Kayo Japanese, she was a Japanese tourist, not a local New Zealander. Kayo's family felt as though, if there had been more coverage of her death, that maybe something would have been reported. For almost 23 years, the Matsuzawa family has had to live with the uncertainty of what happened to their daughter, but they haven't given up hope. One of Kayo's siblings has a daughter named Ayako. Kayo's mother, Humiko, says that her granddaughter looks so much like her missing daughter that sometimes she mistakenly calls her Kayo. She says that Kayo is always on her mind. The mums always come and break our hearts at the end. We say this every time, but the unsolved ones are really the worst. They come with the worst endings. Mm. Because there's always family or loved ones left behind. Wandering. Yeah, left wondering. Mm. Do you think it will be solved? Well, the latest lead was as late as 2018. Yeah. Therefore, maybe. Yeah. That's pretty fresh. It is quite fresh. Mm. 20 years after the event. Mm. That's quite a long time. And probably not that common for cold cases. Yeah. So maybe there is something in it. Mm. These things all take time, don't they? An unsolved murder in the Auckland CBD. Mm. I don't think we've ever done one like that. No, I don't think we have. They've all been solved, if yeah. in the CBD. Yeah. Because as I said, there's only one main street. There's yeah. not a lot going on in there. People would see you. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking walking down Queen Street. It's very open. And how many people live in Auckland? Or how many would there have been at that time? Well, in Auckland, there's about a million now, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Because there's about four million in New Zealand. Okay, yeah. Thus, like, in the late 90s, surely less, you know? Yeah. Maybe we're just breaching a million. Mm Mm-hmm. Which, if you think about it, is not that big. No. That's, like, big small town energy. Yeah. I think people hear Auckland and overestimate how big it is, Mm -hmm. it's not big at all. Mm. You can drive, like, 20 minutes from the city, you're at the edge of New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. You know? So it is a city by all means. There's big, tall buildings, but... Population-wise... No, not a lot. Not that big. And if you are just, like, walking down Queen Street in the day, Mm -hmm. I just can't imagine how, like, no record of her, like, no solid record of her interacting with anyone was left behind. If she did go to that food court... Did she buy something? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. So, and like the theory is that her drink was spiked, then she would have had to have gone somewhere. Yeah. So no bartender or person remembered her being at any venue. I know. and So weird. Like, I know it was 1998, but no venue had CCTV. Hmm. It's just strange. It just honestly feels like to me, she just walked out her room and then like from that between her being found, it's just this like... Yeah. She was like... Black hole. Immediately swept up and taken off very interesting i hope we can update this one one day Mm. i hope we can tick this one off yeah that'd be good now that we're at the end i can disclose that don't you speak japanese riz i studied japanese for about at least like five years damn maybe longer i think your pronunciations sounded very good thank you i remember the very basics and a few key phrases and it tied us through And that's all. And I can't believe that I don't remember a single thing. That's fine. You know what? That's me with French, mostly. Yeah. And on another note, how weirdly close this case hits to home is that in September 98, she was a young 29-year-old Asian 
woman walking around Auckland, New Zealand, and my mom would have been a 25-year-old Asian woman walking around Auckland, New Zealand. Crazy. Yeah. So. That's spooky. It is. Yeah. And I was already born at that point. So she wouldn't, she would, she would have presented very similarly to Kayo, Mm. you know? So, small world. Mm. And I guess your mom also would have learned English. Her English was, she would have been similar to Kayo. Like, sounds like Kayo had some English understanding before she came over yeah i think her english like improved a lot in that year like i think she was like they said it was like good yeah yeah same as my mom yeah damn yeah so that is close to home it is and i would have been five months i would have just been lying there yeah (laughs) oblivious waiting for milk yeah yeah maybe in a nearby suburb just me Mm. lying there so there you go well if you were in auckland in September 1998, and you were older than Helen, and you actually remember anything, were you on Queen Street that afternoon? Mm. You know, on the 11th, were you there? If you found yourself there, have a think. Think about what you saw. Mm. We'll leave you to it. Yes. Thank you for joining us this week. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.